Welcome back, Title Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from New Jersey, Cat Swamp Road, New Jersey. You probably tell you to hear that. So hopefully, God willing, everything is going well in your operation and uh, moving forward. And the storms that came through were not too bad with Hurricane Ida and uh, you know, it was Tropical Storm Ida. We got just under five inches of rain, 4.98 inches which wasn't too bad because in the other storm, I think, Henri, we got seven inches. So, hey, that is, uh, and I'm glad I fixed my soil, thank God, because no standing water, have good soil, uh, good water infiltration, and hopefully, God willing, uh, you have the same situation there. I know that a lot of areas of the country really got hit hard, much harder than we did. So my prayers and thoughts are with them. And uh, it's just been a rough year, right, in agriculture. The markets have been good, but uh, I mean, they work, they move sideways, but they've been basically good, thank God. But then if you have no crop to sell, what good is it? It's almost uh, like a uh, a kick in the shins, right? So who knows? But uh, that is it. We just have to trust in the Lord and move forward. And I have my little cat here, (laughs) Allie, and she was sleeping. So hopefully she uh, doesn't want to get on the podcast again. So another another show or two, and she'll be big enough to go outside. But I don't want to put her outside right now, which is a little bit too tiny. And that we have a lot of hawks here, and then uh, eagles. So I don't want them to to take off with her. So I thank you for your your patience with me with that. But what I'm going to talk about on today's show, and I'm going to get into it right away, is that I have some shout-outs that I need to do, but I did not record them properly. I have them recorded, but I did not I did not uh, give them the respect I need to do. So I want to thank you for, for sending your names in and where you're from, and please continue to do that. And I will give you a push pin in my map with your name on it. And please, I haven't, I've gotten a lot of people in the United States and Canada, but not around the world yet, so we need to do that. Please, please, please. And uh, But you will get the shout-out on this show and on my show on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. But I have refrained from doing it this week because I need to give those people the full respect and get their notes together so I don't mess that up, which I've been, I haven't done that yet. I've messed up other things. So, okay, um, what are you going to do? The only thing that was, that was perfect got nailed to the cross for our sins over 2,000 years ago. So I am certainly a faulted, faulted man. But what I'm going to talk about today, it's going to be a little bit of a different show again. And I keep saying that because as the as Idle Chatter evolves and this podcast evolves, I want to bring you to a different level as far as different as as far as the varied aspects of your interaction with machinery and on the farm. You obviously, as I say, agriculture runs on machinery, but profits on reliability. So you really need to have a broad-based uh, education and broad-based exposure. And oftentimes in life, I feel that you know, exposure is very, very important because uh, the crickets are back. <laughs> exposure, thank you, Donald. Very, very important because having exposure to something, you don't need to have a PhD in it. You don't need to have have be familiar with every intimate aspect of it but being exposed to something allows you to make proper decisions and oftentimes in any business and specifically in agriculture is that the experience that you have and the exposure will allow you to make to make a decision that an inexperienced or unexposed farmer will not be able to do so for instance i mean anybody who's in agriculture knows when the ground is wet you don't want to ride on it right because you're going to compact it but to a novice or somebody who doesn't have that experience then they would not recognize that and they would suffer the wrath of uh, that compacted soil for many many years after that day that they made the mistake of riding on as far as machinery is concerned and just whatever if you're used to warming up an engine and not recognize and thinking that you're doing good most of the times when we make a mistake as far as machinery is concerned almost anything in life our motives are pure we think that we're doing the right thing but it's you know conventional wisdom would say that but when you look into it in more detail it's not that's not the fact that's not the truth i should say so so what I'm going to talk about today, and it's going to be a little bit political, and this is not a political show, and uh, if you were to know me or listen to this, I mean, but we are dealing with different headwinds in agriculture, 
And one of the headwinds that we're dealing with is the uh, lack of support for ethanol. And I spoke about that on my radio show, the lack of support for ethanol and also this move to electric vehicles. But there's also something that's very interesting that has not gotten a lot of press. And it actually was a, I guess you call it an, an act or act or a, act of congress i would say i mean i'm not really that up i'm not i'm not good with my uh, political jargon or legal jargon and but the alley's coming up my leg but um but the uh, the, uh, this act was instituted in september of 2020 so a year ago and it what what it is called is the next generation of fuels act 2020 and that's very very important uh, for us in agriculture, but it's very important even if you're not in agriculture and just involved with engines or machinery or efficiency. So I want to discuss that, the concept of that act. But I need to go backwards first. About 20 years ago, and if you heard this story before, please forgive me, but I just want to give it give a proper segue into this episode. And about 20 years ago, I had a wonderful opportunity. I was blessed through a friend of mine who worked for a company called Runright, excuse me, and Runright is is still in business. They're, they're a great organization. They made a, a product called, well, I think, well, it was, it was called Runright. I think the company was called Cat something, Cat Products, C-A-T Products. And uh, they made this carbon drip chemical. And what it, it was designed for gasoline engines, not for diesels. And what it did, it had a, 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 a bottle, it had a container, and you poured the chemical in it, and you would hook the hook a vacuum, and it had a flow valve on it, and you'd hook a, a, it had a vacuum hose, and you'd hook this flow valve with this bottle on it, and you'd hang it from the spring on the hood of the latch, so, and you'd hook it to a vacuum hose, and you would run the engine at a high idle speed, and you would adjust the flow to have about one drip per second. There was a sight glass on that on the earlier model. I don't know about the new one, newer one, but back then, and you would drip this chemical into the engine, and we're coming through the and it was it was meant to clean the induction path. And also the backside of the intake valve, which I spoke to, spoke about ad nauseum on this show, carbon deposits on the backside of the intake valve, and also clean the deposits off the piston crown. And what was great about it, was, it as I said, it was called Run Right, and it's a wonderful tool. I've used it over the years and used their chemicals in that tool. And the benefit of this versus putting something like an in-tank uh, carbon removal tool or not tool chemical like tecron or something is that you got you had almost immediate results so if you ran it because of the way it was instituted through the intake manifold in a drip format then it was a very aggressive formulation and it would then you'd have instantaneous results and then they would have a supplement that they would have you put in the tank to further clean the backside of the valve the injectors if it was fuel injected but you could use it on a carbureted application also and the crown of the piston it was a great procedure. So the, the purpose of it was that as a repair shop, as a service facility, you could go and put this, do this run right service. And in a half hour, the, cons- excuse me, the customer would perceive a real difference in the vehicle and then finish it off with the, with the in-tank additive. And they would have, and have, have wonderful results. Whereas if you did, just did an in-tank additive, depending upon the use to how the, the vehicle was used. I mean, you, you'd have to do two or three tank fulls to get the same results. If you're going on a cross-country trip, well, obviously two or three tank fulls would be, you know, you'd burn through quite quickly. But if some people didn't use the, if a person didn't use the car much and they burned a half a tank a week, they would take six or seven weeks if they, were, if they didn't forget to put it in to try to get somewhere, somewhere near the same results. So that's so. Why am I telling you this? Is because due to this run right company, and that I was invited to go to a seminar, go to a seminar, go to a seminar at. Uh, I'm, I'm repeating myself because the, the cat is, is is coming by the microphone. Go to a seminar 
at TAI International, which at the time was in Beacon, New York, which is just above New York City, about 70 miles in, in a town called Beacon. And TAI was Texaco Additives International. That was a time when there was a lot of uh, consolidation in the petroleum industry. And this was a division of Equilon, which I don't even know exists anymore. Who knows? But they had a big research laboratory there. And all they worked on was the additives in gasoline. And I, and it was a wonderful opportunity because we, I went to this class there and it was a two-day class and it was it was taught by the chemists and the engineers at TAI, Texaco Additives International. And remember, when you're buying gasoline, and really not diesel fuel, but to, uh, if you buy a premium diesel fuel, then you'd be getting more of an additive package. But if you're buying gasoline, what you're really buying is the additive package because the fuel is what they call base fuel, and that's to the most part is unadditized or additized to a certain level that the government mandates and then anything upon that. So if you buy a branded fuel and they have their own additive package, that's what you're paying for. Now keep in mind, and I've said this before on the show, keep in mind that every fuel does not have an additional additive package in it. And that's what they call the ones with the additional package are usually qualified as top tier gasolines. So, but it doesn't need to have the top tier rating to have a specific additive package. So in essence, if you were a farmer, to make that analogy, you'd say, well, I like to do this to my seed. I put this I put this treatment on, I do this. This is how I mix my fertilizer. So that's what's happening in the gasoline industry. But anyway, I was introduced to, um, to Mike Rawdon and Joe Valentine. And Mike Rawdon was the head, had a PhD. They both had PhDs, and he was the head chemist at TAI. And Joe Valentine was the head engineer at TAI. And they were both car guys. And I guess I've said this story before, so forgive me. Uh, this is for the new listeners. And they were both car guys. And I said to him, I would really love to get together with you. And at the time, I was writing for Hot Rod Magazine, which was, I had one, I'm not bragging, but I had 1.1 million people reading me a month just in that publication alone. I said, I'd like to do a story on gasoline for, for Hot Rod. So I said, great. So they made arrangements for me to come up there, and uh, I came up there, and I had it a couple of weeks later, and I spent a whole day with these two gentlemen in the research laboratory. And I went to a meeting room, it was just us, and they said, ask us anything you want about gasoline. And up until that particular time that I spent that day up at TAI, Texaco Editors International, I was just as naive about gasolines as the average hot rodder, enthusiast, consumer, farmer, what have you. So I learned so much about gasolines in that day, and they answered all my questions and plus. So one of the things that they had said to me is that the next frontier in gasolines, and this, I have to, sadly, I have to say, this is probably 18, 18 or 20 years ago, maybe not quite 20, it was quite, you know, time flies by. And one of the things they said to me, because I spoke to them about gasoline density, and, with, and I did a show on gasoline density probably a year or two ago, is that the density of the gasoline is going to give it its potency. So if you get less fuel economy on brand A or tank A than, than you do on tank B, given more or less the same operating conditions, then historically it's usually due to the density, not be, the fuel not being as dense. So the denser the gasoline is, and the same thing is going to happen with diesel fuel, and that's why they, they, the government specifies that the fuel is supposed to be a certain temperature when it's pumped, but we're not going to go there now. But um, the hotter the fuel, the less dense it becomes. So, But with gasoline, is that the density is what's really going to give you the fuel economy. People think it's octane, and octane, as I've said a thousand times, is that the fuels, it's the fuel's ability to resist combustion through pressure and heat and wait for the arcing of the spark plug, the ionization voltage across the gap of the spark plug. So now to make an agrarian a, uh, a an, ag an agrarian comparison here well just like when you need when when you're going to plant the crop and you're going to have uh, do a fertility program you have to do a fertility program that is going to be for the yield goal that you want years ago we didn't do that we just threw fertilizer down and a lot of people here with dairy farmers in warren county and they would fertilize and, and that would basically be it and whatever they had they had they threw manure down and they grew a crop and 
Sometimes they had success, sometimes they didn't, all right? Or I shouldn't say didn't, we varied a varied level of success. And just like in agriculture, as we're moving, excuse me, as the yield goal for every farmer keeps going up, we're raising the bar, right? We never thought we would get the potential of getting five or 600 bushels per acre of corn, and I'm using corn as a reference, is that, you know, back years ago, we never thought we'd get 40 miles per gallon and 400 horsepower. So as technology, I, you know, I'm going to back up and I'm going to say, as we learn more about engines and have the ability to do more, just like in agriculture, we have the ability to place the seed more accurately. We have the ability to use something like a Keaton seed firmer so we could get that seed to soil contact. We have the ability to do more testing and determine what the soil needs, what the plant needs. So we have all these abilities now, and thank God you would te- you, you, mean, you would hope that we know how to build better engines, we know how to build better, make produce better fuel and produce better crops because we've been doing it for so many years. If then that doesn't mean that old ways were not good, but we have to cherry pick between the old and the new. So anyway, so I remember sitting with this big table in this big meeting room and we're talking about gasolines and nitromethane and all the, all the cool stuff. And uh, I spoke to them about the density of the fuel. And I said to them, well, you know, I, I see my fuel economy could vary quite a bit given you know almost identical if not identical driving environments and i said I, as i understand it's fuel density he says yes there that is fuel density most likely or a major component of it so i said is there any way that the industry can produce a high density fuel because you have to remember backing up as an aside to this and if you're really not involved with the auto industry or even as even as a, as a hobby level that you uh, you probably wouldn't even you wouldn't even notice but uh, but the thing is that that the federal government deems or demands certain fuel economy uh, from passenger vehicles so when you get into heavy you know into bigger trucks even let's say if you go into a three-quarter ton pickup truck usually if you look at the window sticker there's no fuel economy rating there because it's more of a commercial type of vehicle but anything but in a half ton pickup truck there would be so uh and and the government mandates certain fuel economy standards and if there is and if that vehicle does not meet that fuel economy standard then the car manufacturer car meaning car pickup truck what have you manufacturer has to uh has to pay a fine for that and they also put that on the window sticker as a gas guzzler tax so they're not saying that you can't sell that vehicle but you have to pay a but there's a there's a surcharge. Then, for instance, my friend Bob Ida with his Ford GT, not GT Mustang, GT supercar. What Ford chose to do was just pay the gas guzzler tax on it instead of going through the EPA testing procedure for fuel economy because they're only building a thousand of these cars, and they're 650 horsepower. They go 217 miles an hour, and somebody who's buying a 700 thousand dollar car is not going to be concerned with fuel economy, but. The government does not look at it that way. The EPA doesn't say 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 what I said. They said this car is being sold in the United States, legal to go on the road. It has to meet these crash standards, these fuel economy standards, these emission standards. So the only thing that they could have some wiggle room on is to pay the gas guzzler tax, which they which they, they just transferred over to the to the, the person who is buying the car, trying the window sticker, and not go through the expense of 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 actually quantifying the fuel economy through an EPA test because the fuel economy test has to be done on the dynamometer. It's not it's not real world. So anyway, so to get back to on target here is that I said is you know what could happen what what's the future of density? And they said yes, well the future is going to be high density gasoline but the whole problem is we could do high density gasoline right now and dramatically increase the fuel economy which the government which the government wants and the car manufacturers struggle for because the car industry has two two conflicting goals there was a a goal of fuel economy and a goal of emission standards early on in the auto industry those goals were were against one another they were uh, they they fought one another but today we've gotten past that and historically we can we can decrease emissions and 
we could increase fuel economy. But you have to keep in mind that if you're decreasing emissions and increasing fuel economy and try and make an engine more powerful, the more powerful an engine is, it has the, it's going to use more fuel. You could wiggle those numbers, just like if you're going to have 200 bushel per acre corn versus 600 bushel per acre corn. You can't, you can't have, a, excuse me, a fertility program for 200 bushels and then miraculously get 600 bushels. So if you're going to produce 400 horsepower versus 200 horsepower, the engine is going to have to consume more fuel to do that because it's a chemical to mechanical energy exchange. Just like with a, with a plant, you're taking the fertility and it's photosynthesis and you're converting that to grain so there's that relationship there that though we could tweak it and tune it and make it more efficient but it's still a, a basic relationship that has to be that cannot be altered it's like water flowing downhill you can't get rid of gravity so that is that is one of the problems he says to me well the next frontier possibly would be high density fuels but the only thing that comes into play he said with high density fuels which is both mike and joe telling me is that the cost of the auto manufacturers benefit from it and but the cost of the fuel would be very high and the consumer has to pay that cost there's no way that the auto industry can pay for high density fuel because since it's it's the consumer who is buying the fuel so he says i don't so in the laboratory it works it works great and and but it in in racing industry it would work great because it's not a price point of the fuel but back then fuel was maybe less than a dollar fifty two dollars a gallon i don't even think it was two dollars let's say two dollars a gallon he says he says that fuel would be six or seven dollars a gallon and he says at current pricing of of traditional gasoline so he says that's really the obstacle in that so i said okay that's that's very interesting now what is the what is the obstacle as far as octane is concerned because and that's where we get to today in this show with the next generation of fuels act from 2020 which was passed by congress but got zero uh, let me put it this way it certainly wasn't in the news all right, if it wasn't the news, it was buried on page 57. So the thing is that, well, he says, yes, octane is another animal because we can do a higher octane fuel and we could use different components to make that octane. For instance, like ethanol, instead of isooctane or a chemical component to make to, to raise to raise the octane level. And I did a show a couple of weeks back on octane. So if you could, uh, I don't want to repeat that and, and bore you with it excuse me so in essence if you were to look at and the the next generation of fuels act that was passed by congress and got as i said got very little exposure and instead the industry and the and the current the current resident occupant is by a better word in the white house all right is pushing all these electric vehicles and for some reason these car manufacturers are jumping on board with that and like i said this is not i don't want this to be a political show all right but it almost seems that these these companies and and i don't care whether they're domestic companies or foreign companies but i'm concerned just with the domestic companies uh, uh of I, I don't know i guess they they blow with the wind and they put they want to put their, their because the current administration is trying to push electric cars and this show is not about electric cars but they they that's not really the way we need to go in this country is there a place for, for electric cars probably in, in an inner city or maybe like in a school bus environment or a delivery truck that has a route or an inner city bus but yeah then again that's that's debatable because how are you going to make the electricity so there's no emissions coming from the tailpipe but the, you have emissions making the electricity you're mining the battery you're doing a lot of things and what do you do with that battery afterwards and but that's a problem that's that's a discussion not for today but this fuels act this new generation of fuels act is not addressing the density issue of fuel what it's addressing is the octane component of it now you could say to me hey hot rod you just said it so five minutes ago right that there's the octane isn't really doesn't make a difference it's a density in the fuel economy yes well octane alone does not make a difference and to excuse me and to recap slightly quickly is that if you have more octane 
in the fuel then the engine needs to support a a normal combustion event and a normal combustion event means that there is only one event and it's initiated by the arcing of the spark plug that there's no rogue expand no flame created by doing by auto ignition meaning that the gasoline self ignites then you then the octane above that level is not going to make any difference so the thing is that so but we need to understand that there is a, a relationship between the compression ratio of an engine and its octane requirement and also its thermal efficiency so by this new generation of fuels act is addressing the octane of gasoline and it wants to have a gasoline produced that has a 98 octane under the ron scale which is which is research octane number so keep in mind if you didn't listen to my show excuse me i'm gonna cough (coughs) excuse me and go back into the archives please and there's two octane ratings there's ron which is research octane and there's mon which is motor octane the research octane number is a test that is done under less challenging conditions for the engine than the motor octane number so they're talking about a 98 ron research number gasoline so 98 octane and what that would allow the auto companies to do is is really jack up the compression ratio on an engine and the compression ratio on an engine is intrinsically linked to its fuel efficiency and and then when when an engine is designed and tested they test the engine for its rate of fuel consumption on a dynamometer and they look at they look at how many pounds per hour of fuel is produced and consumed to produce a certain level of horsepower. It's pounds per horsepower hour. Because the, when that engine gets into the vehicle, be it a pickup truck, an SUV, or what have you, there's other aspects of, that, of, of the vehicle that contribute to the fuel economy or degrade from the fuel economy. But so, for instance, you could put a very efficient engine in a body style that is very unaerodynamic, and yes, would you get better fuel economy than you would if the engine was was not thermally efficient? Of course, you would, but you're not going to see the big gains. So it's just like you planting a crop. You could you could have a lot of nitrogen, you could have a lot of potassium, you could. But if you if you if you are low on micros, you're low on sulfur, you're low on boron, then that crop is not going to yield. So the building block approach in in vehicle engineering is we get the engine efficiency up. And then what we do is we look to maximize that efficiency, just like a, a high yield farmer will say, I got this seed, right? And I'm going to look to maximize its potential. And the high yield farmer is just maximizing the potential of the seed. He's not putting anything else in the seed. He's letting that 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 maximum be extracted from that seed. So now so then you say you look at the transmission you look at the torque converter you look at the aerodynamics of the vehicle you look at the mass you look at the the uh, all these other components i mean it's even like the width of a tire and the rolling resistance of a tire you put a wider tire on a vehicle so you buy a let's say an f-150 pickup truck with this size tire and then you move it up to a wider tire well that wider tire has a greater rolling resistance and also specifically the front tires people don't recognize this is that they they not only do create a rolling resistance but they create an aerodynamic resistance and that's why if you look at a drag race car they have skinny tires in the front all right because they want the least roll the, the the least aerodynamic resistance as the car goes down the track they're only going straight they're not going to turn they're not going to drive in the snow they're not going to drive in the rain so they're just concerned with the amount of air that that tire is moving pushing down the road you put a big wide tire on the front but you're gonna you're gonna slow that car down in a drag race and the same thing happens on the road you put a very wide tire on your pickup truck so you buy this you know get this whatever silverado f250 150 whatever it is ram and you say oh this thing I, you know, it's a top of the line whatever the top of the line is comes with these big beautiful steamroller 22 inch wheels well that's going to cost your fuel economy because that big wide tire in the front is pushing a lot of wind so in essence what happens is that we 
you you maximize the engine and then you once you maximize the engine you look to other aspects of the vehicle to <clears throat> to uh, allow that potential from the engine to be to, to be revealed and the same thing is happening now with this with this fuels act which i'm very very excited about even though it didn't get any press i keep repeating that well so what they're looking to do in this is they're looking to bring to market as an an additional pump choice of a high octane 98 ron fuel and as i started to say before i got off on a tangent what will that allow the car industry the automotive industry to do is to make a very thermally efficient engine and the dynamics of therm now the study of thermodynamics all right is 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 the uh, the is the heat exchange or the ratio of work for the heat input but you want an engine that's thermally efficient and so in every com- internal combustion engine gasoline or diesel you have three losses and what the losses are established what they mean is it's the difference between the BTU input coming in the gallon of fuel that's being used or being consumed versus the amount of work that go that that is established or put out and what we call work is is what the engine does drives the vehicle drives the tractor drives the combine whatever it may be right and the three losses in every engine are thermal losses frictional losses and pumping losses so now thermal losses are the heat energy because from the combustion event that go into the water jacket of the cylinder head and then get transferred from the radiator to the atmosphere the heat exchanger so it exchange so that's thermal also some of that energy is being lost through the cooling system the other loss is what we call frictional losses and that is the internal friction inside the engine to run the camshaft against the valves the the angularity of the connecting rod with the piston as the crankshaft swings in its arc of rotation and jams the piston up against the thrust side of the bore and that's why as an engine builder or i don't want to say a race guy but as an engine person you there's something we called rod to stroke ratio so there's a relationship there where you look at it as a ratio between the connecting rod length and the stroke because you want to try to minimize that angularity of the piston because that's going to be <coughs> excuse me <coughs> a frictional loss and then also the third loss is what we call the pumping loss and the pumping loss is the work that the engine does to pump the air in and out of the cylinder even though we say that the air is that the cylinder is filled through a pressure differential between the atmosphere and the piston and the cylinder from the piston sweeping down that is true but there, there's work and energy that needs to be done to pump that air and to create that low pressure region so those are the three losses so every internal combustion engine suffers those three losses and for a rule of thumb and this has been modified it's been tweaked slightly just like the high yield farmer gets more yield all right and just like the yield average on crops has gone up over the years in this country is that that a, a number for our conversation that we will assign is 25%. So approximately 25% of the energy goes to therm- from energy from every gallon of fuel consumed goes to thermal losses, 25% for frictional and 25% for pumping. So if you were to look at that, then every internal combustion engine only is using about 25% of the fuel to actually do work and create power by turning that crankshaft so and and as time goes on excuse me and as we uh, what we're doing is we look to minimize those pumping losses minimize those thermal losses minimize those frictional losses if you look at the new engine oils when i say new the past 30 years the engine oils that their that their viscosity rates have gone down right because they want to try to minimize the frictional loss that that engine is doing to run the oil pump you look at most of these new engines they have variable output oil pumps they're doing all these little things to try to eke out just like a high yield farmer says i'm going to put a little bit of this i'm going to do a little bit of this to get another a half a bushel here two bushels here what have you 
So, and to get up to that to that yield goal winning, and or, or a race car guy is going to do this, or whatever, whatever it is. So it's very very incremental changes, but for all intents and purposes, about approximately twenty five percent of the energy that you put that you buy and put into that fuel tank gasoline or diesel is doing any work for you the rest of it is consumed it's like heating a house and having a window open so the thing is that but one of the key components to fuel efficiency in an engine gasoline or diesel is the compression ratio because you have to remember that the compression ratio is nothing to do with area it's the volume of the bore with the piston at bottom dead center versus the piston at top dead center and the way you would do it as an engine builder is that you would cc it with with a, 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 a dyed water and you cc the piston at the bottom at the at the bottom dead center top dead center you cc the combustion chamber is a mathematical equation all right so the thing is that the compression ratio is paramount to thermal efficiency of an engine it's one of the reasons why a diesel engine is more fuel efficient or we call it thermal efficiency in engineering but and as a lay person you call it fuel efficiency is is because a diesel has a higher compression ratio and also diesel fuel has more btus of energy btu of energy per gallon than gasoline does but they have the higher compression ratio and if you turn the clock back 40 years ago all right into the 80s is that we in late 70s into the 80s we had very low compression engines and they were they were fuel hogs they were gas hogs and people used to blame the emission controls it wasn't the emission controls it was a low compression engine and why did they have low compression engines for two reasons number one is because there's an emission called oxides of nitrogen and that works under the zeldovich equation which i'm not going to burden you with now but it's pressure heat and exposure time and and the oxides of nitrogen emissions is why we have all of these emission controls specifically on diesel engines because diesel engines have a slow burn rate they have high temperature and high pressure in the combustion events so they're they're they get all the sweet spots hit to create high oxides of nitrogen that's why they have these egr systems and on a diesel engine the scr selective catalytic reduction that uses the the diesel exhaust fluid is to is to reduce oxides of nitrogen emissions on gasoline engines we have oxides of nitrogen emissions also but they are not as high as on a diesel because the the uh the combustion event is is faster it's quicker so anyway so why did they not have why did these back 40 years ago with a gasoline engine so uh, so fuel hoggish is because to low they lowered the compression ratio to minimize the oxide of nitrogen production and if you turn the clock back 35 40 years ago that we had leaded fuel but new vehicles had to burn unleaded and there was only an 87 octane fuel available and the other thing also come into place was part of the auto industry's fault is that they had antiquated combustion chambers and inefficient combustion chambers that they were band-aiding because they didn't want to make the investment to go and make a modern combustion chamber that would allow an efficient burn with lower octane fuel and a higher compression ratio and and and, um, and the the company that really took the industry and turned it on its heels was honda when they came out with the cvcc engine because they they it was controlled control vortex con, con, it was controlled vortex combustion control combustion chamber vortex something like that i forgot what the letters were for but what honda did to their credit is that they went and they said well we're not going to have this old combustion chamber and try to keep dolling it up and trying to do something and putting all these band-aids on it to make it more thermally efficient and to get the burn speed up so we don't produce oxides of nitrogen and so they they started with clean slate why didn't ford do it why didn't general motors do it why didn't chrysler do it was honda any smarter than them no they were not all right 
but just like is the low yield farmer and he not not as smart as the high yield farmer no he's just not putting as much effort in it and what happened and sadly in my beloved domestic auto industry we had too many bean counters and they didn't want to spend the money on it's not that the engineers didn't know how to do it the engineers knew how to do it better than honda but their hands were tied so anyway we won't even go there but because of that low compression ratio they used a low compression ratio to minimize oxides of nitrogen emissions and yes it didn't cost the car manufacturers much to produce that but the consumer was was greeted with a very thermally inefficient engine so now once they start to come out with higher octane unleaded fuels then they start to push the compression ratio up a little bit higher even though they were still using that antiquated combustion chamber design so all right so we have that foundation now getting back to this next gen next generation of fuels act if if this gets any traction lack of better terms and hopefully it does it will allow the auto industry to pull the stops out and raise the, the compression ratio on engines, use more turbocharged engines, turbocharged engines with higher compression ratios. And, and this has to be a systematic approach. It's not just a matter of putting more squeeze, more compression in the engine, because you're still fighting the, you're fighting the uh, obstacle of, of an abnormal combustion event. You could do things to, 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 to minimize that, but you still find that obstacle. But if we could have this, this act take hold, we're gonna we're going to have the ability for the car companies to produce higher fuel economy engines and higher horsepower and torque engines but let's just talk about fuel economy so if if you could would say to the car companies look the consumer is going to be able to go to the pump and they're going to be able to buy a 98 ron fuel all right, research octane number of fuel. He said, if the consumer is able to do that, what can you do with this engine? If you said to the engineer, he says, oh man, if we got 98 Ron at the pump, then I would do this. I'd run this compression ratio. I'd run this camshaft. I'd run this boost. I would do all these different things if I could have that fuel. So like when I used to build engines, I used to say to my potential customers, clients, I'd say, give me your, basically they would drag race engines. Give me your ET goal. I said, also give me your level of commitment to it because the more horsepower you make on a drag race engine, the more power you make, it's going to require more babysitting and and you're going to have to put different fuels in. You have to do all of this, right? Are you, are you, do you have the, do you, uh, do you, will you do that? Or do you have the tolerance to do that or you're not going to want to do anything? And then also, what is your financial commitment to it? So there's always a financial component to it. So, with this 98 octane fuel if we could if the industry could bring this forward and make this a reality well maybe on the pump we're going to get rid of the mid-grade but the fact of the matter is is that moving forward new engines that would be coming out of detroit would be able to truly take advantage of this now there's a lot of things that come into play with it is that what will be the cost of the 98 octane fuel I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to know, obviously. But keep in mind that as as farmers and agriculture, is that this is also a wonderful opportunity to increase the ethanol content of the gasoline, because there's, as I said in the beginning of the show, there's different ways that you could get to the to the octane level that's desired. You could use an iso octane or another chemical component, or you could use higher levels of ethanol. So this is not E85, this may be E30, E35, E32, who knows what the number is going to be, All right? But the thing is that the beauty part about an ethanol component of this new potential fuel, I mean, it's going to be pumped the same, you're going to drive the car the same, you're going to do everything the same. It's not going to be a pickup truck the same, not going to be anything different. The thing is that, is that ethanol allows the the industry to raise the octane, which is not the power, it's the ability to resist combustion through pressure and heat, raise the octane, all right, but ethanol also burns cleaner than any chemical component that they would use to raise the octane. So they could make a 98 octane gasoline now. I mean, they, they race gas, 116 octane. So that's not the problem. Making it is not the problem. 
all right? But the fact of the matter is, is that ethanol burns cleaner, so we can now produce this 98-octane gasoline, this new generation of fuel, and, and we could not dirty up the emissions with it, because remember, that's the key, is fuel economy, fuel economy, and emissions. So that's the juggling act. So that's like the base saturation of the soil test. I mean, you could go one way or the other, but you don't want to have... That, that, that those nutrients tied up in the in the soil because they're, they're tied up because they, you have too much of this and, and too much of that and it gets tied up. So with, with an engine, you want to be able to get the fuel economy and you want to be able to also, not be able, you have to also meet the emission standards. So by, with this new generation of fuel using a higher level of ethanol, it allows them to get the octane. If you hear noise, it's the cat, I'm sorry. The, the octane and uh and not make it dirty octane for lack of better terms all right plus it's an american fuel plus it's a renewable fuel so now the thing is that if you let's say with this new generation of fuel and if you went and you put it in an engine that that doesn't have the compression ratio to take advantage of it the design elements to take advantage of it is it going to do anything for you probably not going to do much of anything because as remember as i said is that if you are supporting a combustion event a normal combustion event with the octane level that you have right now you could feed it more octane and all you're doing is taking money out of your pocket you're not doing anything right there so so but it will allow just like back in for 1975 the car manufacturers had to come up with unleaded engines that were that ran on unleaded fuel and catalytic converters it would allow the industry to see a big big improvement in fuel economy by design of the by design of the engine and the fuel that it needs so in other words we're now fueling the engine like a farmer would would fertilize a crop for 500 bushels per acre we're now we're now setting the stage we're setting the seedbed for the industry to build a very efficient thermally efficient so take those areas of efficiency and go from 25 percent loss to maybe down to 21 or 22 percent incremental incremental difference so it's very 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 exciting and it's something that is not only going to be good for rural america and, and farmers because the corn grind will go up if we use more ethanol but it's going to be it's a, it's a win-win-win situation i see nothing nothing wrong with it whatsoever the only thing that i would see wrong with it is that and it's it's not wrong it's just that if you were to look at the oil companies and they would say if we're going with e30 and we're doing this new generation of fuel there's probably going to be other components in the fuel not just a higher level of ethanol because you know as, as much as i love ethanol and and it's a fantastic fuel but the fact of the matter is is that when you do put some higher levels of ethanol in fuel there's a it's almost like a symbiotic relationship where you do have the potential to build higher carbon more build carbon deposits at a quicker rate than you would for instance like e0 which is no ethanol <clears throat> versus e10 with the same additive package in it the e10 has a has a propensity uh to build deposits on the valve a little bit quicker than it would be e0 so when we say that the fuel burns cleaner and the ethanol industry doesn't really address this aspect of it but they really don't need to it's what's coming out of tailpipe it's not necessarily the amount of deposits that are going to be formed but like i said that's nothing here is insurmountable but what it will allow the car companies to do is to really bring this fuel economy up because it, you know and like i said this is an, an fyi show it's nothing that you're going to be able to take to the bank but it's a, it's a human interest show it's a it's a machinery it's an engine interest show is that you know the the days of the diesel if if the if the governments of the world had their way the, the diesel engine is is on a collision course with with going off a cliff i mean i even did a show about that is the diesel doomed uh, i hope not but the fact of the matter is the particulate matter emissions and the oxides of nitrogen are a problem and diesel fuel uh, diesel fuel burns very slowly so there's only certain things that you could do inside the engine to increase the burn speed on the diesel fuel but with gasoline even or, you know, it's spark ignition will be ethanol is that 
is that you have a quicker burn speed and because of that quicker burn speed we create less oxides of nitrogen so so if you know if the, if the government of the world had their way we would all be locked in our houses we'd never go outside we'd be on welfare wearing masks inside the house and so that's but if they had their way they would end the diesel engine tomorrow and in europe they're doing that ahead of us they really want to get rid of that diesel engine but i'm not for that i think it's a mistake but what i'm really excited about is this new generation of fuel and the potential as an engine guy the potential that we could see in thermal efficiency by having an engine that is truly designed for a higher comp- I, I, to utilize a higher compression ratio and if it's turbocharged a higher boost level because the more air you could pack in it the tighter you could pack it not only the more power you're going to make but you're going to have a higher level of efficiency and you have to remember that the efficiency is the output of the engine over divided by the input of the engine so it's the heat transfer out versus the heat transfer in we look at that as horsepower torque and fuel economy but it's actually a heat transfer so in essence if we could have a gasoline engine in your pickup truck that has a fuel available at the pump that you could have a 14 to 1 compression ratio and we're not that far off right now and have an optimized calibration in it for that 14 to 1 compression ratio and have this 98 ron fuel that is being brought to market by having a higher level of ethanol in it we are meeting the emission standards we are meeting the fuel economy standards we're, we're, we're giving the customer a lot of throttle response a lot of power you could actually now downsize the engine make the engine smaller if the engine is smaller it's going to use less fuel just intrinsically by the design of it being smaller we're going to minimize the weight we're going to minimize there's nothing wrong with it so just like in agriculture that until we recognize the fact of night micronutrients all these other components that are allowing that seed to produce 600 bushels per acre of corn with this new generation of fuels act if it is embraced it's it's going to allow the auto companies and the designers and the engineers to to get this yield up and get this fuel economy up where we've never seen it before while still using the infrastructure we're not putting electric in we're not doing the infrastructure of uh that we have in place it's just a matter of saying well this pump has this new generation fuel whatever they happen to call it and then now the only thing that comes into play is that you know how would you stop a consumer from buying a new generation of fuel engine and putting old generation fuel in well you probably couldn't stop that but you could do that through the calibration and you could do it through the calibration is that you could very easily see and you could degrade the performance of that engine to such an extent through the calibration that when i mean degrade the performance take the power and fuel economy out of it that the person would very quickly learn you know that they have to buy the proper fuel for it so um and if they don't buy the pop of fuel, they're not going to blow up the engine. They're not going to hurt it. It's not going to do anything. It's just going to be trained that they that they're not getting what they're paying for. So, but what I would like uh, before I get ready to close here, I'm really excited about this new generation of fuel. It's the answer that this industry has been looking for. It's the answer that the automotive industry has been looking for. It's the answer that the agricultural industry is. It's good good for the country. I don't care if you live in downtown Los Angeles. You're going to benefit from fuel economy. You're going to benefit from a higher octane fuel at a lower price, whatever price that may be, because we're using ethanol. We're supporting rural America. It's an American fuel. It's an American-based fuel, and is and it's going to allow the for the consumer to see fuel economy numbers like they'd never seen before because we are no longer limiting right now the engine is being designed around the fuel at the pump so just like for instance if you're a farmer you're designing you're 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 making your your decisions based upon the ability that you have with your soil if you say well i want to go in there and i want to put the 
a foliar feed application when the corn is at v, VT uh, or VT, and you say, well, I don't have a high crop sprayer. I can't get in there to do that. I don't have an airplane that can put it on. I don't have a helicopter or anything to put on. Then you can't, you cannot put that foliar application on when the corn is at VT. So the thing basically is that same thing here is that we're, 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 we, the auto industry has done wonderful things and made wonderful improvements in, in fuel economy, but right now they're looking for another gear. And the other gear is this this new fuel. I don't want to really say it's a new fuel. It's a next generation is probably the proper name for it. Just like we had unleaded, it's a next generation fuel. And God willing that that you as a taxpayer, that you, and I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed because this got, I'm saying again, got very little traction. We're pushing electric cars. We're pushing all of this stuff and we don't have the infrastructure for it. We don't know how we're going to make the electricity, and it's really not clean electricity. Even if you make it, even if you make it with solar panels and wind, and I have nothing against those those sources, all right. But the fact that you're making the bat the battery in the vehicle has a limited life. You know, those batteries in these, for instance, like not, not knocking the Ford Mach-E, but, but when you get these electric vehicles, whether it's a Tesla, whether it's a Nissan Leaf, whether it's a Ford Mach-E, you know, those batteries, <laughs> I mean, they have cooling systems, they have control circuits, they, they actually have an, a coolant going through them. I mean, this is not like, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of D batteries from a flashlight in the, in the trunk of a car and they're running down the road with it. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of things that go on with that and that, that the public doesn't aware of. And there's a lot of environmental issues with that. And there's range issues and there's so many issues. But if we could, if we could get this to take hold and if the people in the agricultural community will contact their senator, contact their congressman, contact National Corn Growers Association, contact the ethanol industry, and see how they could support this. And support doesn't mean you have to write a check to these people. Believe me. The thing is that, and you know, listening to this podcast, telling people about it, and I'm not trying to push my show, but getting a buzz going about it and just, just being knowledgeable that it exists is going to make a big difference is trying to push this forward and we would all, all benefit from it. So it is called, one last time, the Next Generation of Fuels Act from 2020. You could do a internet search on it. And basically, all it is is a, a higher octane fuel that will be available at the pump to support an engine that is designed around that fuel to increase the fuel economy, reduce the emissions, and that fuel is going to be a basis of, of regular traditional gasoline with a higher level of ethanol and I'm sure some other components and I'm very, very excited about it. It's a fuel we needed for a long time and I hope that this, my little podcast from Cat Swamp Road can help get the word out about this and get a buzz going on it and we will all benefit and most importantly, agriculture will benefit but more importantly that America and the world and will we'll benefit from it so if you have any questions any concerns with that any arguments please feel free to reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and now we're going to bring Tech Rubinowitz in and before the toolbox test so what you're thinking cap on He's running at 895 octane, Ron, 98 octane. Yeah, righty. Thank you so much, Tex. I was a little bit slow on the take up there as far as uh, it's fading that out. All right, you got your thinking cap on. We got a new toolbox test here. Question. Your chainsaw with a decompression starting button fires up easily but does not run properly. The exhaust sounds different and it is down on power. The throttle response is poor and it does not like to take a load. You remove the spark plug and it looks fine along with the air filter. The carburetor is clean, but you sprayed it down anyway. Confused, you ask some friends and this is what they tell you. Farmer A says that the decompression valve is most likely carboned up and is leaking. Farmer B believes that the piston rings are worn. Farmer C is adamant about it being the gasoline. And Farmer D feels that it is the magneto. So your chainsaw with a decompression starting system on it. 
starts and starts fine, but does not run, does not run well. And the, the telltale sign is the way the exhaust sounds. All right. So you think about that as I get to my letter here and my special delivery letter. So get ready to close the show. All right, so this gentleman writes, Hi, my name is Paul, and I have a 2016 Case IH Combine. I am getting it ready for harvest. I am in between oil change intervals. Should I just bite the bullet and change it now? Thanks for your show. All right, so the thing basically is what I would do is, Paul, I know that you know combines take a lot of oil and then it's not cheap to change them, is that I would probably... We got some time now. I don't know where you where you're located and when you're going to start the harvest. But anyway, what I would do is I would see. You said you're about halfway through your oil change intervals. I don't know how often you change the oil on that, but regardless, we'll just go with the halfway mark. What I would do is that the first thing is you could bite the bullet and just change it and then go from there. But but let's say that we don't. We for some reason you don't want to do that. All right, the next step would be to do an oil analysis. Pull an oil analysis on. I'm a big proponent of oil analysis. It's like a soil test. It's like a, a, uh, a, 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 what do they call it? Uh, not uh, the other, not the soil test. I can't think of it. uh, When you pull the leaves off the plant, I'm sorry. I don't know why I can't think of that. Uh, Or a sap test on a plant, so what have you. That's not what I was thinking about. Uh, but anyway, um, the fact of the matter is pull a, pull a, pull a oil analysis on and send it to a lab. It costs you about $25, and you'll see exactly what's going on. And then you can make a decision based upon that, all right? The, th- the thing is that, and then I would look at it and say, well, geez, I have X amount of hours on this oil, and historically, your harvest on your farm, you put so many hours on the combine. So if you do the soil, uh, the soil, this, the oil analysis on it, and it comes back where the oil is very good, it's very clean, has nothing in it, and you say, well, I har- it takes me whatever I run the combine two hundred hours during harvest. Now, I know, like on my my tractor, my little tractor, when we're in sweet corn harvest, that I usually put about a hundred hours on it, shuttling stuff in and out of the field. So the thing is that if I was at you know, if I change your oil every 100 hours and I'm at 75 hours, then I'm not going to get to my harvest and I would want to change it ahead of time because I don't want to stop during harvest. So to, to do those comparisons of that and see what see what the story is with your oil, but, but never be afraid to change. The only thing that you're going to hurt by changing the oil more often is your pocketbook. The engine is not going to, the engine is, is not going to be mad at you for changing the oil. It's not in love with it. But if you do that analysis and if you're running multiple combines, this could get expensive as far as changing the oil prematurely. But do that analysis, compare what's going on with that oil versus how many hours you would do normally do to do your harvest but regardless and this is since we are getting into harvest season i'm glad you brought you know brought this letter up do not put equipment you know equipment to bed with with old oil in it or oil near its oil change interval there's a lot of people think well i'm near the oil change interval i'll put the equipment to combine to bed for the winter time and then i'll change it next year when i'm going to get ready to harvest which which like i was saying you know uh conventional wisdom would say that makes sense right but keep in mind that used oil has a lot of has moisture in it has acids that built up and create sludge and you really don't want that equipment to sit all winter with older oil and so most likely you're going to end up changing that oil again but that is fine because it is cheap 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 insurance so in essence see how many hours you have on it do a pull an analysis. It's always good to pull analysis regardless. Remember, you need to have some hours on the oil to, on any engine or any transmission, any fluid to have any any semblance of an accurate analysis. Go from there and then make your business decision based on, on that. But please, when you do put that combine to bed or whatever equipment to bed for the winter time, please have fresh oil in it. And then you're ready to roll in the spring or the summer or fall, whenever it is, if it's a tractor, you don't want the equipment sitting with oil in it, with a lot of, with some hours on it, with the moisture in it and all, and the acids that are going to be created and the fuel that no matter how efficient the combustion is, that you're going to be getting some some fuel in there and some other things. So you don't want it to sit there all winter or a year sit like that. So uh, if you have any questions on that, 
But I don't think there's a right or wrong. The thing is that you need to be able to take care of that machine because it is a, um, it's, 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 you need, it's more expensive to fix it than it is to, <laughs> to change the oil. All right, so now we're going to get to our uh, toolbox test question, and we're going to close the show out for today. So Farmer A has the most likely answer. This is based on the engine starting easily and just running poorly. Most decompression valves are pushed closed by the cylinder pressure as soon as the engine starts. If the valve is carbon laden, it may be either slow to close or not fully close, thus leaking cylinder pressure to atmosphere. It can usually be eased, easily removed and cleaned. So don't forget as a, on any engine with a decompression valve that you want to use that as a service point, even though it's running fine today get familiar with how to take that valve out you take it out usually clean it with carburetor cleaner put it back in there may be a gasket or an o-ring or something there replace that and you're going to have the benefit of a very easily starting good running engine because any fuel is hydrocarbon based and it is going to create some level of carbon and on a one cylinder engine like that on a chainsaw what have you that decompression valve has the propensity to carbon up so listen i want to thank you so much for tuning in today and and you know think about this with the new generation of fuel hopefully that it gets some traction in the news hopefully it gets some traction with the, with the with the government and with the oil companies and we bring this to market it's going to be a wonderful thing but know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america you have a blessed day and please contact me so i can put a pin in my map push pin with your name on it in your town. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.